as you place your implant, you're feeling and you're thinking. Mm -hmm. If you feel like, you know, it's got that kind of resistance as it's going in and it's not quite, you know, you just feel like it's, it's, it's literally that feeling like it's about to talk out, but you've only just started placing the implant. Mm -hmm. Don't just keep going. <laughs> Stop back it out, redrill. Yeah? yeah. Don't just idly go, oh, you know, and then I'll just talk it right down because people get very nervous and they don't, especially if the patient's awake, you don't want to be seen to be, you know, taking out the implant and then placing it again. And gosh, you know, what are they going to think of you? Don't worry about any of that. Just mm -hmm. make sure you do the right thing and think about, you know, why it is that this implant just is, you know, is, is tougher to place than it should be. That was Dr. Nu Dastaran. This is the Newbie Dentist Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Omid Izemi. Welcome to episode two of the Implant Audio Mini Residency brought to you by my good friends at Mordent. I'm very excited. I hope episode one was filled with gems and nuggets of information for you listeners. If you haven't checked it out, be sure to check out episode one with Dr. Leighton Fu, which was Implant Dentistry for the General Dentist. In this episode, which is episode two of a five-part implant mini audio residency, I sit down with oral maxillofacial surgeon, Dr. Nu Dastaran, and we get into the surgical aspects of implant dentistry. From patient assessment to planning to this flap designs, osteotomy sequence, rationale for single, you know, single stage or two-stage implant placements, and much, much more. This is one of my favorite episodes that I've done recently as... I myself am very interested in the surgical side of dentistry and of course implant dentistry. So it was nice to get to have the opportunity to sit down with an oral maxillofacial surgeon and ask specific questions that I have in mind. And I try and put myself in the position of the dentist that are listening to ask questions that I think will be high yield for you as well. There is an accompanying radiograph, OPG and CBCT slices that I will put on my website newbiedentist.com which we refer to throughout this interview. So if you want to check that out, so you can kind of follow along, head over to the website and you can find the image there. In this episode, we talk about a lot of aspects of the surgical side of implant dentistry. And in the following episodes, I'll talk more on the restorative and digital planning side. So I'm really excited to kind of sequentially walk you guys through implant planning, implant placement, implant restoration, and implant maintenance. I'm really excited about this series. So I hope you guys enjoy it. This week's episode of the Mini Implant Audio Residency is brought to you by my good friends at Mordent. Mordent is your proudly Australian-owned and operated partner, driving the charge forward in integrated digital dentistry. Being the only fully integrated local dental company, Mordent offers world-class education, equipment, products, solution, and support. The Mordent team of over 50 specialists are helping thousands of Australian practices to seize the opportunities in digital dentistry transforming treatment for their dentists and the patients alike. Whether you're seeking to upskill through education or are considering implementation of digital dentistry into your practice or just looking for some advice, I highly recommend reaching out to the Mordent team. Visit www.mordent.com.au to find out more. I will include their information in the show notes for those interested. As always, if you're new to the Newbie Dentist podcast, thank you for checking us out. Be sure to head back and check out the previous episodes that I've done on the podcast. I've had the privilege of having some amazing guests on the podcast over the past couple of years. 
If you're returning, thank you for your ongoing support of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I hope this mini implant audio residency is full of value for you. And if you are getting value, please head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. These ratings help the show get more traction within the dental community. Without further delay, enjoy this week's episode. I'm joined this morning with Dr. Nu Dasaran, who is an oral maxillofacial surgeon here in Melbourne, Australia. Nu, thank you so much for being a part of this implant mini audio residency. And I'm excited to kind of take your, get your take on you know, the surgical side of things today and implant placement. And before we kind of get into all that, though, I'd like to hear your story and why you got into OMFS in the first place. And we'll take things from there. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me, Omid. It's a pleasure. Um, I studied medicine first um, in the UK, and it was while I was teaching anatomy to dental students at the University of Bristol that I, you know, absolutely fell in love with head and neck anatomy. And um, uh, being a purist, um, thought that, you know, there's no no better thing to do um, than to go back and study dentistry so that I can progress in my career as a head and neck surgeon, because it was this area that I was interested in. And, um, and when I finished dentistry, well, towards the end, I had an amazing opportunity to come to Melbourne to be, um, during my dental elective, to work as a, a locum uh, senior registrar at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, which is a real coup. Um, yeah, definitely awesome. an opportunity that would come around very often. So uh, being me, I just sort of, you know, took the opportunity, even though I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to um, to, to rise up to it, but um, I did and um, was invited back the following year to uh, take a position as an unaccredited registrar. And really my love affair with Melbourne began then. Um, and uh, maxillofacial surgery was just, um, just seemed the natural uh, progression from there because, you know, having studied medicine and dentistry and really being more interested in the heart issues than the soft issues mm-hmm. um, or the ear or the nose, you know, um max Vax was really for me as opposed to say plastics or ent for example yeah definitely and melbourne is a great place to be having come here myself it's uh definitely one of the better places to to live in the world so i'm curious you know when you were in med school were you all like what were you going to do initially before you kind of fell into like the dental head and neck path did you have like another career choice or was a surgery still like another field of surgery or well, I enjoyed everything I did at medical school. I enjoyed medicine. Um, I enjoyed general practice, but I knew that I wanted to be a proceduralist of, of, of some kind yeah. because, um, you know, certainly within the NHS, certainly if you have a procedure that you can do, um, it increases your employability, mm-hmm. really. So, um, you know, whether it was, you know, echoes or, you know, a soft joscopy or, you know, whatever, um, but then I realized, you know, I'm actually quite practical. My mother's a sculptress. Um, yeah. So she's an artist and she's very good with her hands. I wish I had her, you know, her ability to just look at something and sculpt it. But certainly I think I've inherited something because, yeah. <laughs> um, because you know, I'm very sort of, um, I like to work with my hands. And so surgery came from there. And then the love of the anatomy came from, you know, teaching it. So um but really, I could have gone down any path because I enjoyed all of it. I love medicine, but then I studied dentistry and I loved that too. And yeah. I really, I really, you know, thought thought carefully about whether or not I wanted to practice as a dentist, mm-hmm. having studied dentistry rather than going back into surgery. But um, when I had the choice. opportunity to come here, yeah, I just, I'm, I don't, you know, it, the journey was just wonderful and it still is wonderful and I wouldn't change anything. Sure. So. 
And tell us a little bit about your current practice, sort of like what you're doing in your day-to-day procedures and what you kind of get excited for in your week. Well, um, so I work in public and private practice um, in Melbourne and regional Victoria. And I think um, I've been very lucky and very grateful that I have sort of, I do work in regional Victoria and um, during COVID, um, I've actually been quite busy still because mm-hmm. the regional areas are still been working, you know, still yeah. been running, not, you know, at hundred percent, but so that's really kept me sane. It's really been a lifeline um, just as Melbourne is beginning to pick up, but I'm on call for the Royal Melbourne this week. And we're very, very much back to, back to you know normal in terms of you know the trauma that we receive and we're starting to get back into the elective operations which is great so orthognathic surgery really is my main love and I always say to patients you know you're in the right place you're in the right city in the world to have your jaw operation because people come from all over the world to train mm-hmm. um, to do this operation they come here to Melbourne because we're so good at it and we do so much of it and it, I love it because it's so life-changing for the patient um but it's also you know it has its you know it has it's it's a little bit scary and that you know you're taking a well patient and you're rendering them sort of unwell for a while um and so that you know that's a slightly different mindset to taking somebody who is un, you know who's for example broken their face in an accident mm-hmm. and you're repairing it so it's a slightly different um mindset but it's it's definitely my love and then trauma i love because it's it's every case is different and um uh you know the face is just so important both functionally and aesthetically um for somebody's um psychological well-being you know you have a huge yeah. huge play following a, a, tr- a big trauma so um and it's like a jigsaw puzzle you know the end <laughs> you want to get to yeah. you just have to get there How as well as you can as safely and as safely as you can so it's the challenge that comes with every trauma case as well. And the decision-making, you know, often these patients have multiple injuries. They have a head injury or, you know, other parts of their body. And you, so you have to communicate with your other, um, with your other colleagues um, in yeah. surgical medical fields. So that makes it certainly more challenging and interesting. Definitely. And I think that's one of the appeals of uh, oral oral MFS as a specialist, because it's such a broad range of procedures Mm -hmm. that you do, like some of the work that you might do in private practice, which is maybe more in line with what we'll talk about today with like, you know, implants and things. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's one side of it. But then all the stuff that you get to do in the hospital settings with trauma and like the orthognathic surgeries and um, like all the oncology stuff and things like it's just a huge kind of broad range of scope of skill that you guys kind of develop throughout your training, which is uh, pretty, pretty exciting. So, you know, as a part of this, this module that we're doing, we're doing kind of five episodes on implant dentistry, and I'll be talking to uh, Dr. Harry Schlen about sort of guided and technological aspects of it. What I was hoping to talk to you about today was more the surgical planning and like surgical execution. Um, I'm not sure, and we'll we'll touch on it, whether or not you do more of your cases like freehand versus guided and things, but um, just in terms of, you know, just basics of surgery, planning, flap design, and preparing your sites and placing the implant and things. We'll kind of kind of go through that in a kind of sequential manner, if you don't mind. So in terms of patient assessment, so a patient walks in the door, they want an implant, um, say in the, in the hypothetical case that we're doing today, like the two, four, two, five site, what sort of the initial things you kind of do in your workup and your assessment of the patient? Well, certainly I want to know that their oral sort of disease or their oral condition is is healthy and stable. And I think that's really important. And as I say to patients, if you can't maintain your own teeth, there's no way you can maintain an implant, yeah? yeah? 
and I and I you know use the sort of car analogy you know you have a car you maintain it you take it for you know servicing on a 12 monthly basis and if you don't it can fail and leave you in the lurch and 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 it's really important and 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 you know componentry might need to be um changed um over the years and that's you know that's part of the deal um so I'm quite firm about that. I get very nervous when people come. If they come, you know, if generally my referrers are obviously really good and, and, and you know, they've, they've addressed all of these things, you know, by the time the patients come to me. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, is, is the site that's being chosen for an implant or are the sites um, edentulous or is there a tooth there, first of all? And, and obviously, depending if, if, if there's no tooth there, then... Um, you're looking really at the quality and the volume of the bone and the soft tissues. And if there is a tooth, you know, how are we going to time the, um, the extraction? Is there infection present um, versus healing? And then how are we going to sort of, how are we going to plan the, the treatment process, but also temporize? So if it's a front tooth, for example, then I'd need to speak to the restoring dentist to discuss temporization. That's really important. So, so there's a few things. Um, but quality of uh, tissues really. Um, and am I gonna be able to get the best, um, am I gonna be able to, my ideal um, scenario is to be able to achieve a, a, de a dental implant that looks like a tooth, right, yeah. in every way. And if that's gonna be compromised, the outcome in any way, then I need to make sure that the patient is aware of that. Out of time. And what about in terms of uh, like diagnostics, in terms of imaging um, or scans and things? What do you normally do as like a baseline in terms of your treatment planning? Absolutely an OPG. Um, and sometimes patients will come with a PA and that's fine um, because they might have seen an endodontist and they've had, mm -hmm. you know, very minute imaging, sort of very detailed, um, small scale. But I want to see the whole mouth. Mm -hmm. I want to see the opposing dentition, the jaws, make sure there's no underlying pathology, something that's been missed. Um, and then um, I will assess the patient clinically before I organize any further scans. So I think that, you know, nearly 100% of my patients will have a, a cone beam CT scan at some point, yeah. but that's not without me making sure that I'm targeting the scan to where I, you know, the, the area that I want it. And importantly, if I assess a site as being deficient in bone, then there's really no point in scanning that site until, you know, because it's not ready for an implant, it's clear yeah. clinically. That there's no nowhere for the for the implant to go so then i will look at bone donor sites so if i'm planning a ramus block graft for example i'll scan the ramus bilaterally because oh, that's going to tell me how much bone there is um, and the distance from the nerve for harvesting yeah yeah so yeah i mean that, that's the thing that i want i emphasize to you know my referrers is that if you're not sure just send me the patient and I'll organize the scan but certainly if you're if you look at the patient clinically and you think there isn't enough uh, bone stock and that's why you're referring to me um I'm not interested in further scanning that site because yeah. I can glean that information clinically already yeah. so that makes sense so there's no point imaging the recipient site if you know it's not going to be enough bone anyway so you just take from the donor site so you can plan your surgery that way and, and do it 
Okay. So how does your, so, so in terms of like, cause I want this to be like very practical. So in terms of like your appointment breakdown, so that your patient comes in, um, they've been referred to see you for that implant. Um, you take your images and you do your planning is the next appointment then for the procedure or how do you kind of, what's your workflow appointment wise? Yeah, pretty much. You know, sometimes though, I will have to have a conversation with them on the phone because they don't have the CT scan. So I give them the option of coming back. If it's a complex case and there's a lot of money involved and, you know, then I, I do feel more comfortable with a face-to-face -face review. Mm -hmm. So I can actually show them the scan and go, this is what, you know, this is why, why I'm planning this. This is why I've planned your treatment like this. Um, but if it's fairly straightforward, then I will just touch base with them on the phone. Yeah. Um, and then the next appointment is a surgical appointment of some sort. So whether it's the extraction or um, the implant placement and guided bone regeneration, depending on what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, and then obviously in between that, before that um, next appointment, I'll be on the phone to my restoring dentist. Um, talking to them about their expectations and and and, and importantly, what's uh, implant systems they are familiar with and what their preferences are. Yeah, there's a lot, lot, lot of communication. It seems like it's very important, obviously, with the referring dentist or restorative dentist to make sure uh, the outcomes achieved. So what we'll do is uh, you've shared an OPG and a PA of like a hypothetical case that we'll kind of go through. This is a case that you did see yourself. Um, so obviously, if you're listening to this as a podcast, I'll have it in the show notes. You can kind of download it and just have a look. Or if you're watching this on like YouTube or Instagram, then you can, it'll just be on the screen so you can kind of go through it. I think this is cool because we can actually maybe approach it from both angles of one is an extraction site that's already been there for a period of time. So you can just talk about it as if you're going to go ahead and place an implant. And then maybe like the 2-4, I believe, is like a previously root-treated tooth that has an apical infection. So uh, we can talk about extractions and uh, different sequencing and things from that, if that's cool with you. Cool. Absolutely. Are you going to put the picture up or yeah. did you want me to? Yeah. Oh, perfect. So okay, great. So, um, so essentially, as you can see here, you've got the 2-4 space, which is... Um, there's obviously a tooth missing, and then the two fives in root canal treated. Okay, the two five is completely asymptomatic. So the patients come with an OPG, bearing in mind there's no other imaging. All right, yeah. and um, so I I'm looking at the patient clinically, and I'm looking at the space for rest restoring the two four implant. Okay, now we've got to remember the OPG is deceptive. It looks like the space is really narrow mesiodistally, but clinically there's plenty of space. So remembering as the OPG comes around the head, as the, as the beam, X-ray beam comes around, um, it's sort of, as you go through sort of the body area of the, so basically in line with the, um, the pupils, essentially this area here, yeah. the, um, the, the, the image is squashed. So everything looks much closer together. So actually clinically, there's a lot more room for an implant there. So that's number one. Secondly, um, is there enough um, height? Is there enough width? So height you can sort of see there, but width you need to assess clinically. And certainly he had not enough bone clinically. It was, there's a bit of a concavity. And you can see that on the OPG. If you look carefully, you can see a little cleft, a little indent along yeah. the crest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that you'll often see that on imaging, if you look carefully oh, and that, yeah. yeah. So, so clearly there wasn't enough width here, um, but there was enough height, which was good. So mm -hmm. the patient needed bone grafting and I felt clinically that they needed an onlay bone graft as opposed to just guided bone regeneration, because I want the best emergence profile here. And I don't want that to be compromised. I don't want to have to place the implant too palatally just because that's where the bone is. So, um, 
I, you can see also this patient's got impacted wisdom teeth, they're horizontally impacted and they need extraction. Um, And um, this patient actually, you know, on further questioning, the the forate was symptomatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see there's a little bit of bone loss there. There's some chronic inflammation and um, there's a risk of there's probably even a bit of decay on the distal of the four seven. I'm not sure, but certainly that's that's indicated for extraction. So I said, we'll, we'll take your wisdom teeth out and I will harvest a, a block of that ramus. OK, and put it up at two foresight and sort of skewer it in place with two yeah. screws. You need a minimum of two screws. Um, so we're killing two birds with one stone. That bone is going to go anyway. Um, so I'm not creating any more morbidity. And even if I were, you know, that's every case is different. Every patient's different, but certainly I, I always look to the ramus first. If there's not enough bone at the ramus, I'll look at the chin. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so, so I did get a CT scan of the ramus. So you can see to the left-hand side, there's a, you can see the root of the horizontally impacted it, and you can see where the inferior alveolar nerve is inferiorly. So really for me, it's a case of height more than anything. So how much height have I got from the crest of the ridge to the nerve to safely cut the bone with a drill, with a saw or a drill. Yeah. So I did that. Um, but it happened to also have a CT of the 2425 side. I don't think I actually asked for it. I think they just gave it to me because they do that. These um, companies, radiology companies, they just scan everything, even if, you know, <laughs> which is fine. And actually, interestingly, you can see on the, you can see a bit of GP that's come out that's, um, from, yeah, this yeah. GP. but in this particular slice, you can see there is a radiolucency of the distal of the five, of the apex of the five, mm-hmm. and the patient was asymptomatic. And this is where it's really important because you have to make a decision about where, what to do with the five. So that, so that, you know, if you place an implant in, you know, six months time, if the five fails, the patient doesn't go, well, why didn't you tell me, you know, mm-hmm. you're not fighting fires, you're, um, you're planning ahead. It's really important. So I discussed it with the patient, discussed it with the with the restoring de- with the dentist, um, and both agreed that they would just monitor it, because yeah. we're not treating a patient on the basis of their X-ray. We're treating a patient on the basis of how they are clinically, and you know the tooth had been stable for many years. So I said, okay, fine, we'll leave it. But as soon as you feel, and, and I felt comfortable that the apical infection potentially, if there were any, would be further, for, you know, away enough from my implant to not affect it because it's kind of pointing more distally. Yeah. So that was the other consideration because you don't want infection at your graft site and you don't want infection, you know, around your implant. So um, I did the bone graft. And then when he came back three months later for me to remove the screws, um the uh the five was symptomatic yeah so rather than place the the implant at the four i basically just took the screws out and i took the five out and that's that little cyst came out with it so i was really glad that i did that i let that heal and then he came back and i placed both the four and the five implants two separate implants at bone level um at the same time and then, and I discussed with the dentist, are, we, are you going to be placed doing two single tooth implants or are you going to splint them and do a two unit, you know, to a bridge, mm-hmm. an implant retained bridge? And um, I think they decided in the end they were going to do two single implants, which yeah. is fine. And there are benefits to either of those, you know, you can, you can argue the, the risks and the benefits of both. Yeah. Um, but that was their preference. So. Okay. So, I mean, that's a, that's a really good overview. So I guess for the purposes of the, like the audience listening, um, let's assume this case has come back. Now you've taken the five out, the block graft has kind of healed. So now you're looking at a, a patient coming in with an edentulous 
2425 site with good bone because um, mm-hmm. most of the listeners aren't going to be doing like blog graphs and <laughs> kind of that kind of stuff. So, um, so the patients come back now, it's like, you know, two, three months later, everything's kind of healed yeah. up. Um, let's talk about maybe like, like your flap design and what the surgery was then from like start to finish in the placement of the implants. Yeah. Okay. So let's assume that the, the site isn't grafted mm-hmm. at all because, yeah. um, uh, essentially if you can preserve the papillae on the distal of the canine and on the, you know, the mesial of the six mm-hmm. and just do like a, an H flap. So you just do a, an incision across the ridge mm-hmm. and then just, you know, just a small incision on either end, like a stop cut. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then that's quite nice. Cause you've got, you've got enough access and visibility. Mm-hmm. You can extend the H the, the sort of the stop cuts into the buc- buccal sulcus if you want to, um, but it it can you pre, you're preserving the papilla and the attachment on the um, adjacent teeth. So that's quite nice if you can do that. If you're not, if it's a bit tricky and you're a bit unsure and you you don't want to make that little cuff of tissue too thin because you can potentially devascularize it. Mm-hmm. It's okay to to include that in your flap as well. So you can do a you know your incision can go all the way like right up to the canine, right up to the six. Mm-hmm. Include the papilla. So never split the papilla. You either include it or you don't include it. So along, and then you do your relieving incisions. Um, if I can get away with a single relieving incision, I will, um, if I need a relieving incision. If, I can, if I'm concerned that there's gonna be a need for guided bone regeneration, then at both sites, then I will tend to do my relieving incision in a controlled way that's sort of, you know, you've got to really try and sort of diverge the incisions so that you maintain the vascular pedicle yeah. to the narrowest part of the flap, which is at the crest of the ridge. So, and so that your incisions are away from where you're grafting. You don't want your your muco- your your mucosa to be um, laid down on top of where the graft is. Yeah. So on that incision on the ridge, are you going more like palatally just for that access point, or where is that? Is that just right down the middle of the ridge, or? Oh, it depends on where the keratinized tissue is. Okay. Um, you want a nice, healthy cuff of attached keratinized tissue around each implant so i don't want to over you know usually just on the crest sometimes a little bit more palately because you tend to have a little bit more tissue there and you can borrow it so bring it across so that when you close you then have more sort of tissue on the keratinized tissue on the buckle aspect and that's important for aesthetics as well yeah so so an ideal case in something like this you would try and preserve the papilla um cut just you know inside of either papilla there make a incision across the ridge plus minus like some releasing incisions on the sort of the buccal sulcus of it if you're doing one is that always is that generally like mesial so that just for access or say that again what would be mesial so if you're doing one uh like relieving incision would it would you put a measly or distally normally oh uh, i would tend to go i would actually tend to go distally yeah. for um aesthetics to be honest okay. yeah but then you know, yes, if I have to make it, especially if one has to be longer, then I'll tend to extend the distal one. You know, it does end up having to be a bit longer maybe, but but it's less cosmetically um, critical. So yeah. Um, yeah, it really depends on how, yeah, it depends on the situation really. But in this particular case, you know, if there's no need for further grafting, you, your flap can be really minimal. Um, I do like to raise a flap though. I think that it's the safer way to do it because if you do, do end up needing to do a little bit of grafting, then if you've got a flap, then you have a lot more flexibility. 
Yeah. yeah. Or I always, you know, 99% of the time, my implants are two stage implants. So I will bury the implant. Oh, yeah. And yeah. And um, because for me, that increases the predictability and it I, just my level of comfort. Um, and so um, I would tend to do, yeah, I would tend to do that rather than, you know, a, sort of a, a, a flapless operation or um, doing it you know, by punching a, a, a using a tissue punch, for example. Yeah. Um, now, the reason I give for um, essentially, if you're doing it as a single stage versus a two stage, it doesn't increase, doesn't make it any quicker. You still have to wait for those three months. Biologically, it's three months for mature um, bone, essentially, mm -hmm. and full osseointegration. And um, you're not going to start loading the implant earlier than that you know, yeah. if you want it to work. So rather than have an implant sort of just a, a, a healing abutment sticking out through the gingiva, being constantly traumatized, getting dirty, you know, commune, you know, um, you know, attracting plaque, um, potentially compromising the osseointegration, I'd rather just bury it, yeah. you know, um, that it's it's the same as any orthopedic principle you know if things move they don't heal as well the healing is less predictable like in 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 a in a, in a bony fracture you're more likely to get a non-union or a fibrous union that becomes infected if the bone is moving mm -hmm. and any micro movements i feel really uncomfortable that's just me I, i'm quite conservative and it's no you know for the patient it's there's no increase in time and it's just a bit more work for me but it just means i can sleep at night yeah so what do you so uh I guess we'll just finish this thought before we go on to the next one. So what would you do after three months? Do you do, you do like another, just do you do a punch at that point to expose it? Or how do you expose the implant after? The it really months? depends. It really depends on the soft tissues. It depends on the, the uh, thickness, the, the contour. Mm -hmm. If the contour is, excuse me, if the contour is perfect mm -hmm. um, for as though, you know, the tooth can literally just fit in and it's just sitting beautifully, um, then I, I would consider a punch. But more often than not, then that's not the case. And you have to consider doing a little bit more soft tissue work mm -hmm. at the time, which would be borrowing keratinized tissue from the from the palate, for example. And so that's another opportunity to do that and to augment your buccal um, tissues. Um, so I would then just make a, 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 a little incision, um, bring the tissues across. Um, not no excessive stripping. You don't particularly need um, relieving incisions at that point, but just enough to be able to see your cover screw, remove it, and then place a healing abutment without trapping any tissue under the healing abutment as you're placing mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So, so you've raised the flap. You're ready to place the implant. What percentage of your placements do you do freehand versus guided? I'd say I do perhaps ninety percent freehand. Mm -hmm. um, I've done a few guided recently um, in situations where um, very, very um, thin bone, very, um, the volume's not um, su sufficient really to give me a little bit of leeway and the nerves right there, the inferior outer nerve, for example, where, so, you know, there's just one sweet spot. Yeah. And um, particularly um, if I am taking the patient to theatre, for example, the couple of cases that I have done have been GA cases, and um, I've used I've actually used um, M Guide, the MISM Guide, because I I feel like that just gives me um, the accuracy 
that I that I need. I find that some of the other guides will, yes, you can, it will give you a pilot drill, pilot hole, but that's pretty much it. So you might as well just do it freehand, to be honest, yeah. because it's only really giving you the point on the crest that yeah. you need to, you know, enter the crest. It doesn't give you anything about the angulation, the inclination. So what's the, to me, what's the point? I'd rather just do it freehand, but but certainly with the M guide, it, it you can control all those other factors um, more easily. So, yeah. yeah, that's when I, yeah. And do that. So in terms of the, like preparing the implant site, any, mm. any key tips or tricks or anything that you think would be valuable to share? Preparing the site. Yeah. Like just like the osteotomy is like just getting ready to place the implant. Oh, as in, okay. So doing the osteotomies, um, you get a real feel for the quality of the bones, the density of the bone as you're doing the osteotomies. I always harvest that bone if I can with a bone catcher in case I need to regraft it. Often I will just do a little bit of patchwork or just put it on top of the cover screw. Makes me feel good. And then it's a real nuisance because I come back to take the cover screw off and I can't get to it. I have to like chisel the bone away. But that, that makes me feel like Oh, you know, the, this is this is a good implant. You know, they yeah. heal well. But um, what do I do? So based on that, you can you get a feel for how um, much you may need to under prep the side, or really make sure that you're prepped to the to the, the maximum diameter that you can. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got re- the hardest bone for me, I think the but the bone that's the most precarious is the really dense cortical bone that has very little blood supply, where you've got cortex against cortex like this, um, and you know the crest is. You've got to make sure that the, you really cut the crest well, mm-hmm. because often if there's anything that's going to hold you up, it's that crestal bone. Yeah, so you'll end up having to back the implant out, and if you've got a, a cutting implant, the more you try and place it and then back it out and place it and back it out you're going to really make those threads less sharp so they're not going to cut into the bone as efficiently so your primary stability is going to be compromised just from that so bearing that in mind so make sure that you know sometimes i'll over prep just the crest Mm -hmm. knowing okay it's going to be a little bit that's not the key area for primary stability anyway but it just means it's not going to hold me up um some so depending on the implant company they have different sort of maximum diameters that the drill bits go to for the diameter of the implant and you know depending on the system that i'm using i might sort of over drill a little bit or mm-hmm. just just um just to make sure that i don't you know that i that i'm not overly compressing the bone as the implant is placed yeah. i get i don't like to finish off my implant placement with the hand wrench i like to be able to place it at a maximum of 50 newton centimeters um with the implant motor so if i'm having to like really talk it down that makes me really uncomfortable and if i feel that's going to happen i tend to just stop back out the implant and then redrill um depending on the system so the mis implants are great because they cut in some of them aren't don't have cutting threads Mm -hmm. i'll tap I'll, i'll always tap the osteotomy site because um those those implant systems you know you just can't rely on the implant to help you and it's really important not to undercut the osteotomy i'd rather have an implant that didn't talk out at 15 newton centimeters that i'm going to bury so the primary stability is not as great versus one that i really have to talk down um, because i'm that's much more likely to fail because i've overheated and overcompressed the bone yeah so it's interesting because like some people prefer to like you know hand torque it in at the end or so what made you kind of decide to do it is just from like your own personal experience or 
Well, not, I think I just get very nervous. People talk about like crestal bone loss, you know, early, early crestal bone loss or just mm-hmm. implant failure. You know, it just, it just within the first, you know, two or three weeks, mm-hmm. um, the implants failed. And I mean, you know, that's never happened to me, not yet, touch wood. Yeah. And I, so I feel like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm sure it'll happen at some point, but, but I just feel like that over, we don't we underestimate how much heat that compression generate you know that process generates and how how much over compression can potentially kill the osteocytes and impair your um osteointegration we talk about primary stability we know that's really important for the long for the so so the, the the better the primary stability the more likely you are to have secondary stability we know that that's been proven in the literature but that's within reason right so that's no one's ever talked about how much torque can you get away with yeah. and i think if you start using a hand wrench and you're going you know to 70 80 you know even 90 newton centimeters i just get really nervous about that yeah so you try and cap yours at 50 50- with your placing with the with the hands i mean i might just do one if i just had to do a tiny little turn with the hand i would do it because i don't want to back out the whole implant but Mm -hmm. certainly um so it's about thinking so as you place your implant you're feeling and you're thinking Mm -hmm. if you feel like you know it's got that kind of resistance as it's going in and it's not quite you know you just feel like it's 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 literally that feeling like it's about to talk out but you've only just started placing the implant Mm -hmm. don't just keep going (laughs) stop back it out re-drill yeah Yeah. don't just idly go you know and then i'll just talk it right down because people get very nervous and they don't especially if the patient's awake you don't want to be seen to be you know taking out the implant and placing it again and gosh you know what are they going to think if you don't worry about any of that just Mm -hmm. make sure you do the right thing and think about you know why it is that this implant just is you know is is tougher to place than it should be yeah what uh, percentage of your implants would you say you'd place under local versus general like just like a single unit implant oh um 70 percent local yeah okay so it's not so people shouldn't look at not being able to do ga or some sort of like iv sedation or something as like a hindrance for simple like single unit cases and things like that I always say to patients, it's like, it's no more, actually taking a tooth out is probably more traumatic. You know, psychologically having the implant placed is not as traumatic and certainly it's less painful. You know, it's less, it's less painful afterwards, but it's also, um, I don't know, it's sort of a reconstructive thing. It's not, you're placing something. And so it's it's definitely not that big of a deal. Um, For me, um, and I say to patients, there's going to be a lot of opening and closing. Mm. I need you to, I need, I'll be drilling, stop, check put my put my direction indicator in check mm-hmm. the um a position of the implant check against the opposing a, a dentition so there's a lot of opening closing um and i warn the patient of that so so you know and they're all very they're all like oh no we're very grateful that you're taking your time to make sure the position is perfect but that's really important mm-hmm. um i find that easier actually when the patient's awake when the patient's <laughs> sleep it's a little bit harder to yeah. get that obviously you've got to you have to have a nasal tube so that mm-hmm. immediately makes it a little bit more um invasive i suppose um but yeah so it's, it's just a bit harder to because they're sort of lying flat versus you know semi-recumbent and um you're trying you know if they're if you've got to make sure you get them in the right occlusion so you can work out where the teeth meet yeah so so you do a fair bit of teaching and things uh, around implant dentistry and work with a lot of people who are kind of just starting out is there anything that's 
important that we haven't touched on you think or any other kind of advice that you have that people could find uh, useful before we wrap up um i think i think no i think we've covered every i think we've covered the main things which are um treatment planning but not you know overall treatment planning and looking at the whole picture looking at the teeth adjacent teeth looking at the opposing dentition um definitely the opposing dentition and really focusing on you know the restorative space because you know i'll sometimes get referrals from from dentists and there's no, absolutely no restorative space so it's all very well i can place an implant but um where's the crown gonna go for example and then um uh just um yeah, just looking ahead, you know, particularly um, if you've got and lower, so anterior mandible um, teeth that are beginning to fail, mm -hmm. um, thinking about the long-term prognosis of the whole section rather than just one tooth in isolation, because you know they can be quite tricky implants to place and to restore, mm -hmm. um, and you want to sort of um, yeah, just make sure that you, you know, you're, you're taking the whole sort of site into consideration and not just the implant site. But I think we've covered, we've covered everything. And I think imaging is really important. Remembering OPG always yeah. and, um, and CT scan is not a substitute for clinical examination. Yeah, that's good advice. Now, I think that was definitely great. We've covered a lot of topics in terms of, you know, different flap designs, preparing your osteotomies placing uh it's interesting that you, you know you do like the two stage like bury them versus kind of having the uh the healing abutment there from the start and i think you know definitely for people starting out that's probably the more predictable way of doing things so uh even though i may add like a second you know the argument is like the second surgical kind of procedure to expose it and things uh it may be worthwhile just to get that predictability in the actual implant placement and some like long-term success so um i think it's definitely a good approach uh, the freehand versus guided i think is, is going to be a good debate going forward for like for people starting to place their first few implants mm -hmm. uh and like doctor uh, i think there's like the muscle memory component of it or reducing the overall variability and obviously with someone like yourself with like the experience and things it's you've already naturally got that less variability than like someone like like me would have like placing my first few implants so uh I think it might be worthwhile to start with guided and then maybe potentially Absolutely. go with freehand. I think, I think that guided um, implant placement is just, you know, revolutionary really. And I, th I think it's great. And there are situations that, you know, I look, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great, what, what I would suggest is do, do a few guided. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and learn from that, you know, don't just do it and close up because it does speed up your, you know, treatment time, obviously. Mm -hmm. Do it and look at, take it out, look at the osteotomy, put the direction indicator in, look to see how it's emerging from the ridge, look at to see how it, you know, so, so almost pretend you're doing it freehand mm -hmm. and take that time because you'll learn so much from that. So that when for some reason one day you come to place one freehand, you'll know exactly how it should look, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I would say do some guided and then maybe do a couple non-guided and and see, or even, you know, if you're game, have a guide, do it freehand, but then just compare it. I, I don't know, know, but you've yeah. got to push yourself <laughs> to progress because yeah. one yeah. day, you know, one day you'll have a guide and for some reason something will go wrong and it won't work. And then you will have to improvise. And that's happened to me as well. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you just have to make do with what you've got. And 
you know, you can't just, you know, particularly for patients with sleep, you know, I can't just walk away and go, well, I'll just wait for it to heal and come back. I just have to, I have to finish the operation somehow. It's important to have those skills, absolutely. But perhaps not when you're starting off, but I would highly <laughs> you know, recommend that you use it as an opportunity to think and to learn and not as a, oh, this is great because it means I don't have to think while I'm placing an implant. It's a slam dunk and it's easy. Mm. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. but yeah, it's revolutionary, and I, I probably will start placing more guided just because it, you know, it, it does uh, it does speed up. It means less chair time for me, which is great. I, uh, <laughs> I can see more patients, which is you know, I'm very time poor. So yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good prompt to have. Uh, yeah. Any other like last minute advice or anything like that, just in general for anyone kind of starting out in surgery or implant dentistry, and any like kind of uh, you know, but the mindset of it is is quite important as well to have like the confidence to back yourself and things to kind of like you said to get you know grow out your comfort zone, try things to get better. Um, any other kind of last minute tips or anything? I think don't be hard on yourself when things don't work, particularly if you're taking out a tooth, you know, like it's happened to everybody. And that's how you learn so much from complications. You learn so much from things not working, you know, whether you're a maxillofacial trainee or a consultant or even just, you know, a dentist, you know, a young emerging dentist. So um, don't be hard on yourself um, and, you know, have someone that you can pick up the phone to that you feel comfortable with, who can give you some advice, you know? Um, I think that's really important. We're all here to support each other, you know, whether it's your local periodontist or or a maxillofacial surgeon, you know, people will send emails to me all the time going what do you think about this or or send me a text message and go oh, I was thinking of this would can you do it is this appropriate or not you know and and I think it's all about communication um but um and pushing yourself and practice practice awesome well leave it with that thank you so much for coming on and sort of sharing your experience and knowledge with the listeners i think it's going to be a, a popular episode within the uh you know mini series that we're doing because it was filled with a lot of good information and so if you're listening we talked about some imaging and stuff i'll put the link uh, in the show notes and otherwise you can kind of just watch it and follow us as long as we had a chat about it thanks again and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Newbie Dentist podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. For all show notes and to access all previous episodes, head over to www.newbiedentist.com. Have a great day.